It's a highly dangerous undercover mission never attempted before. To create a fake elephant tusk destined for the black market, decked out with a state-of-the-art GPS tracking device. It'll be used to go to the front line of the war on wildlife and catch the violent kingpins of the ivory trade in the act. I knew I couldn't go back. Your you just wife. put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to live. Just dug even Luck deeper. is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I couldn't. That I? was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Cogan. Every week I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators. People who ditch the excuses, swerve off the predictable road, and epitomize what it means to ticket before you kick it. We all need to worry about something in life. And if you really don't have anything to worry about, you're going to worry about trivial things. Adventurer and award-winning documentary filmmaker J.J. Kelly often ventures way off the beaten path, deep into the heart of a country, putting his life at risk to cover stories focusing on wildlife crime and conservation. This small-town boy is also a badass explorer, who conjures up some crazy journeys just because he can. J.J. canoed 1,400 miles from Alaska to Seattle in a homemade kayak, navigated the full length of India's River Ganges using paddle and pedal power, hiked 2,300 miles along the Appalachian Trail, and biked 1,300 miles along the path of Alaska's pipeline. J.J. Kelly has an amazing ability to blend the two worlds of his life and career, as someone who dreams up life-changing adventures and hard-hitting stories. All right, I am with J.J. Kelly somewhere in the world. J.J., how long have we known each other? A month and a half, maybe? A month and a half. Yeah. So every day uh, since I've known you, I keep finding out more and more about you. Well, it's been a very intense month and a half. It has been a very intense month and a half. We sort of... We got sort of randomly thrown together. Yeah. Uh, we weren't expecting to be working together. No. And, and so far, we've taken a number of overseas trips together. Yes. Uh, we have, uh, gosh, we've been in the wilds of Africa. We've been mm-hmm. under the oceans in the Caribbean Sea. We've, mm-hmm. uh, we've even been to Charlotte, North Carolina yeah. together. And climbing some towers in Spain together, too. Oh, well, that's, I forgot about Spain. Yeah. It's yeah. been a crazy adventure already. <laughs> Um, but every day I keep finding out new things about you. Where did this passion of yours for adventure come from? Well, I grew up in a small town in Minnesota, and the town was so small we didn't have a stoplight. It was less than a thousand people, and I grew up on a, on a farm. Um, you know, you knew everybody in your community. My my class that I graduated high school with was six people, very small. Okay. Uh, the class below me was two people. They were dating each other. They didn't have a lot of options. <laughs> Um, so I just had this very small backyard, and I would even do weird things. I would explore it, and I just wanted to know more about you know, how the world worked and what was going on. If I saw a book about Tibet or China or the Philippines, I would just devour it. And I would do this weird thing where at the end of school, I would ask my mom, I'd say, can you drive me like five miles to this town over here? And there was a lot of forest where I grew up, and I said, I'm just going to figure out how to get back home. Everybody else thought I was a real Hold weirdo. On. You got your mom to drop you off in the bush and said, I'll just find my way I'll home. just find my way back home. And I'd go to all the towns around where I was from in Minnesota, and I would just kind of navigate my way back home. Where do you think that curiosity came from? I met a gentleman who traveled the world. And I remember like having such a small view of what the world was. And he brought up this idea of taking an RV up to Alaska. 
I knew it was possible if I would have thought about it, but it never seemed real to me that you could actually drive to Alaska. Maybe that's because we have these maps of the continuous United States and Hawaii and Alaska are over here. But I remember thinking for the first time like, oh yeah, you can go there. You, you can drive to Alaska. You can go through Canada and, and go all the way up there. And was that your first big adventure in your life? Like it was the first time you left your state and headed out? Yeah, I went to a year of college um, after high school. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't love it. I wasn't enjoying it. So I decided to take everything that I had in a pickup truck and I drove up to Alaska. So, you know, when you live in a country like New Zealand, you're isolated. Yeah. And you read about all these places in the world, there's this desire to go and leave and explore because you feel so out of it, if yeah. you like. I mean, yeah. you're just, you, the only way to see the world is you have to go out to it. Right. And I, I feel like for you, it's a similar situation, yeah. right? You're in this tiny little town and you have this passion, desire to go see the world. Well, it's even more, wouldn't say a problem, but in the United States, we have so many different diverse biomes accessible to us. We have such a huge landscape, but we don't even realize it's there. We take it for granted. You know, I, I knew this one tiny town that I grew up in, and that was the extent of my knowledge of the world. And, and the crazy thing is like, people say that you travel to a certain spot and you know, you know the world better. Well, actually you don't. You go to another town in another state and you realize there are all these other spots that you don't even know about. The world gets smaller the more that you travel. Which so, is kind of weird, right? Right. Yeah, and, and I, I wanna jump ahead to a, a story. I want you to share this story with us because it's an interesting journey how you got to this moment. But uh, there was a story that you did that you, you got an Emmy nomination for that had to do with the ivory trade. Yeah. And uh, somehow this guy from this small town in America finds himself in the middle of this crazy adventure. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I'd been working with National Geographic for about 10 years up to this point. And we had this radical idea for a project. Most of the time when you make a TV show, you have a couple of weeks to go out and shoot it. We had enough money and a small core crew where we could spend a year to make a project. And I'd made a previous film that was also a cover story for National Geographic magazine about the ivory trade. Elephants are getting slaughtered all around the world, especially on the continent of Africa, for one thing, for their ivory tusks. So I'd made a previous film where we went and we exposed the carving factories in China where they were carving up this ivory. And that story ran on the cover of National Geographic magazine pretty much everywhere in the world, except in China. Because what we were saying is, shame on you. Shame on you for killing these elephants. So we said, well, let's make another film. And what if we're not saying shame on the consumers? What if we're saying, here's the bad guy. Let's expose the worst of the worst. The people who are providing. Who are profiting off this. Okay. The, the most corrupt, vile humans that are profiting off this entire system. Let's find out who they are. So what we did is we enrolled one of the main taxidermists from the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And we said, we want you to make ivory tusks, fake ivory tusks that look real. And they have to look spot on perfect because people's lives will be on the line. Our lives will be on the line, but the people that are the middlemen handing this ivory off, their lives are gonna be on the line. The, the weight has to feel right. An ivory tusk that's you know maybe two feet across, weighs 14, 15 pounds. It's, it's very dense, dense and yeah. heavy. 
and it has to be balanced correctly because inside this artificial tusk, we were gonna put a tracking device. And it's not like an iPhone that has a port where you can recharge it. Once you seal this thing off, the window is finite. The battery is ticking. And how long have you got with the battery? You can set it. We could, the cool thing is we could set it for how often it would ping. And inside there was a GPS device, so it would collect its coordinates as it moved around. And then once a day there was also a satellite device that would send all those individual GPS coordinates back to us. This is genius. I love this idea. Okay. So, genius or crazy. Okay. Um, dangerous. Dangerous. Yeah. So the way that we set it up, it would ping once a day and it would last about a year. So we worked with this guy in Silicon Valley and he made this very unique daisy chain of batteries that went the length of the tusk. And then the satellite tip was at the top. I remember my wife in Brooklyn bringing it up on the rooftop because I was already out in Tanzania working on a, another aspect of the story. And she's up like rotating it around. We're finding out how it's going to work. Imagine best. someone sees your wife on top of a building <laughs> with an elephant tusk. Kind of pointing it around. And we were nervous. We didn't want anyone to find out about this, you know, yeah. because we were, this, the secrecy level reasons. was very high. Yeah. yeah. So she was sneaking this bag that, because we had five tusks and, you know, that weighs 60 pounds and she's trying to haul this up on our rooftop and our neighbor's like, you're still married? I'm still yeah, married. Okay, Amazingly, I'm, I'm still married. Yeah. And, Darling, do you mind walking around with 60 pounds of <laughs> fake elephant tusks? The neighbors saw her and they're like, do you need a hand? She's like, no, I got this. I'll be okay. <laughs> So we made these tusks and uh, we felt like they were, they were gonna be perfect and we wanted to get them into the center of the continent of Africa, kind of on this point where they could go many different ways. Mm. They could go west out through an area like Togo, they could go through a traditional port like Kenya or Tanzania, or they could go north. I love that you, you, you said five or six of them? Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that you thought to not just do one. Like yeah. the obvious thing would be like, oh, we'll just do one and we'll track one. But the, yeah. that you, you had more chances, obviously, of tracking. Yeah, we thought they might fail. We might, they, they could get lost. You know, they could split up. They could tell us more information by going different ways. And we just wanted to see where they went. So we fly to Africa. We stop in Tanzania before we're going to go into the, the Congo. And I've since been to the Congo four times, and it's one of the most intense, corrupt, violent, contentious areas on the planet. And I've had a chance to travel to a lot of places. So we were going to go into the middle of the Congo. Um, but before that, we went to Tanzania, and these tusks um, were so good. And we had paperwork from the U.S. government, from the Fish and Wildlife Service, from National Geographic. We had photos of the guy making it, because we knew that if somebody saw us with tusks, they're very illegal to have that we could be seen as smuggling in ivory ourselves. So we had all this paperwork, and sure enough, we land in Tanzania, and the guy that's in charge of flora and fauna and wildlife protection pulls us aside, and he see, we have all these cases. You know, you work in, in TV. We travel with all these black cases. Yeah, we got, you probably got 30 cases. 30 cases, yeah. and, and we know what ones have the ivory in them, or I do anyway, and he, we're running them through this scanner. Is your heart pounding? Oh my God, it's on my chest. <laughs> And he, he points to the case that has the ivory in it, I know. So I'm trying to do, you know that old shell game where you kind yeah. of swap? I'm like, oh, you mean this one over here? You're oh. from New York. You're used to three-card yeah. monty, right? Yeah, you want this one over here? And he's like, no, I need that one. So he cracks it open. And I said, I, before he opened it, I said, I, I know what this is going to look like, but here's all the paperwork we're doing. And we didn't want to reveal what they were used for either. We said that we were using them as props in a film 
and that we need to have a GPS device in them because elephants have this great memory and that they'll pick them up and they'll, they'll move them and, and they'll, they'll bring them to a spot. We need to be able to locate them. That was our, that was our story anyway. It's a good story. Yeah, didn't hold up. Anyway, he sees these and he says, look, you assholes, how dare you take our natural resources, our precious natural resources. I've been doing this job for 12 uh, years because the guy that made them were so good. When you saw off the end of an ivory tusk, there are these little, little line, schrader lines. Like rings? Yeah, like rings. What like, are they like called? Schrader lines. Schrader lines. Like on, like on a tree, these right. growth rings. And he got them perfect. And he said, that's, he said, I've seen fake tusks before, but this is how I can tell that they're real. And these tusks are real. You're not getting on this plane. He pulled us off the plane. He said, you're under arrest. No way. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going to hold this story right there. You're under arrest. JJ, uh, the fact that you went from being this kid growing up in a small town and you end up in a situation like that is a pretty remarkable story. So let's, let's go back to this first big adventure of yours. The first big one was going to Alaska. Is that right? Yes. I mean, what was that like for you, that, that first trip? Do you remember the level of excitement? and? Yeah. I still get goosebumps when I think about it today. Yeah. Just leaving, you know when you've, you've had an intense experience in your life and you kind of leave that mm -hmm. behind and you, and you go on and you look at a new sunrise, a new horizon every day, like driving out. I had this pickup truck and I, know, I knew I was going up to Alaska mm -hmm. because I had that memory, that seed in my mind of you can go to this place. I didn't know where I wanted to go in the world, but I thought, wow, I could, I could drive up to Alaska. And that seems like a place full of adventure. Feeling of freedom. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, I can do whatever I want. I can turn left. I can turn right. Whatever I want. Yeah, right. Whatever I want. And when, you, when I grew up in that tiny town, that wasn't always the case. Mm. You know, I felt kind of like walled in. Um, and I felt like I learned everything about my own backyard, and I wanted to explore other backyards. What was challenging about your upbringing? I mean, you, you were only 18, and you, you, you felt like you were escaping? You, want, you were getting away from something? I just felt like we weren't taking advantage of all the possibilities of life there. I, I was reading these books, you know, about these grand adventures that people would have around mm -hmm. the world. These adventure books were my favorite. And yeah. these people that were going out and risking something and, you know, getting this adrenaline level for trying something they'd never done before. And, and I, it led me to make my way up to Alaska, but also to do a number of trips like that. Yeah. Um, the first big one that I did was I hiked the Appalachian Trail. And the AT, the Appalachian Trail, goes from Maine to Georgia or Georgia to Maine, depending on which direction you want to go. And it's long, right? Like 13? 2,300 miles. It's a celebration of all the mountains along the Appalachian Trail, or all the, all the Appalachian Mountains. So yeah. basically, a lot of different long-distance trails will try to get you to point A to point B. Mm. This tries to get you from point A to point B while going over as many mountains as possible. Mm. And the Appalachian Mountains are extremely old. They're worn down. You know, the highest point is 6,800 feet. Most of them are about 3,000 feet, so they're smaller mountains. But you go over about every one possible. I and, rode over them on my bike when I rode yeah. across America. And, you know, I thought, oh, I'm through the Rockies. Don't worry about the Appalachians. But, yeah, man, serious. those climbs just go on forever. They're serious. Yeah. I've, I've heard that hiking the Appalachian Trail is the equivalent of climbing Mount Everest 16 times from sea level. Because every day you're doing three 3,000-foot mountains with a 50-pound pack on That'll get, you, that'll get you tough. Yeah. <laughs> but I loved it. I yeah. loved it. I knew that I didn't want to. I started going to college for something that I wasn't interested what in. What did you go to study? 
And when I, ancient language and culture. Was it all about getting the piece of paper? Were, like, were you encouraged to like, oh, go to college and get the piece of paper. You can always fall back on the piece of paper. What was the motive? I mean, who was telling you you had to go to college? Everybody. 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 That's what you did. That was the ticket out of the, your small town. Yeah. Right? That, that's as, as good as it gets. You know, you go to Minneapolis, you get a job there, you get a spot, you know, a house. And, and I, I don't, you know, look down on anybody that, that did that or my family and friends. But for me, it just didn't feel satisfying enough. Yeah. So, so I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew that I liked being outside and I liked to have these adventures because I'd read these books. How many, how many uh, months did it take to walk over 2,000 miles along the Appalachian Trail? It takes a while. Yeah? <laughs> uh, it took five and a half months of walking every day. Wow. And you stuck, you did it all in one go? You'd... Yeah, all in one go. I was 19 years old. I didn't have much money. Um, I read that it would cost you a dollar a mile, so I'd save 2000 $200, and I actually, because I grew up on a farm, I made all my own food. So I spent three months, you know, we had animals, so I slaughtered a, a sheep and a goat, and I dehydrated and made jerky. This is kind of before those, like, mountain before house kind of meals. Before you buy them in a packet. Yeah, and so I would, I would dehydrate potatoes. I went, to the feed, I went to the feed mill, and I went to the guy, and I was like, hey, you know these organic oats that we buy from you for our horses? Could I eat those? Because <laughs> they're super cheap. Yeah, if you want to be a horse. Because <laughs> a 50-pound bag of oats from the feed mill was only $30. So what did he say? He said, you know, technically you can eat them. You know, there's, they're, technically. Not a, they're not as refined, so you're going to have a lot more of the hull. A lot more roughage. A lot, but he's like, yeah. You were probably the most regular guy on the Appalachian clean. Trail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I would lay them out in sheet trays, and I put honey from our bees on it and peanut butter, and I made 100 pounds of... Granola. What was it like growing up? What was it like growing up with your with your mom and dad? Was your was your childhood an exciting one? What was it like? Um, I mean, my mom is amazing, and yeah. and she's my source of inspiration. She raised me. Um, my my dad was a man of extremes. Yep. He met my mom running marathons, and if he wasn't running a marathon, he was very addicted to pretty hard drugs. Mm. Um, he did morphine, and and that ultimately. He was hopped up on morphine when I was four, and he fell asleep in a car. The car started on fire, and he lost uh. his leg. And, and he would be this like amazing, passionate, always there for you father. Or he would be, you know, in, in Minnesota, they don't sell alcohol on Sundays. So he, I remember him drinking mouthwash. Uh. Um, so it was just, you know, eventually my parents split up, and, and uh, you know, eventually. You stayed with your mom, obviously. with my mom. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, you know, we, we, you know, a lot of people have tough stories. We had a tough story. We grew up on food stamps and, um, you know, it was, it, it was, it was hard. My mom raised my sister and myself and, and did an amazing job. Um, but my dad wasn't really never there. He ultimately, um, right when I got my first internship with National Geographic and he was a little bit more in my life then, um, after my first internship transitioned into my first job with National Geographic, uh, I heard he was terminal mm. and I, I headed back just I mean understanding obviously you got you know your mom and your dad's genes um, and there's there's good and bad in everyone mm -hmm. what are some of the qualities that you got from your parents that you are thankful for what are the some of the better qualities that you got from say your dad my dad would walk into a room and he could light it up with his personality yeah he would just make everybody smile 
Uh. He would, you know, inspire people. I remember, you know, when I went to visit him, he was living in a nursing home, and I'd made a couple of my first documentaries, and yeah. he'd organized these screenings. And I walked in, and I was like a celebrity. I was famous already. And every, he'd, he'd my walk, son! Yeah. <laughs> he, and, he, and he would just be able to organize, and he was a great leader. You know, and, he, and he had his struggles. Um, but the, the, his ability to communicate and to excite people, to take a situation that could be very negative and be very down and turn it into a positive, to always be a very positive individual, you know, that stuck with me. Because you know, we travel to some extreme places yeah. and we're in uncomfortable spots and it's easy to say, this sucks, yeah. you know, this is awful, this is miserable, that's miserable, I hate this, you suck, you're not good at your job. Mm -hmm. But if you can turn it into something fun, then you, you, everybody lights up. And, well, there's, and, I always say there's two kinds of people. There's people that focus on what's right, and then there's people that focus on what's wrong. There's yeah. people that focus on what they do have, and there's people that focus on what they don't have. Yeah. It sounds like your dad had this, this positive quality, and, and you know, I've seen that in you. You're definitely a, uh, you know, the, the cup of oats is half full. Yeah, I mean, it, it should. Right. <laughs> And what about your, your mom? Yeah, obviously, you were maybe, can I say, closer to her just because of the fact that you, you yeah, spent absolutely. most of your time with her? Yeah, I'm very close to my mom. She worked in a state park, mm -hmm. and I think that's where I get my love for the outdoors from. She was a park ranger. No way. Yeah. Is that right? She was a park ranger. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so I, during the summertime when we weren't in school, I would just go and I'd spend time with her down in the park and hang out with her there and check in with her. You know, she'd be at the park office and I'd go and wander around and get lost. And, you know, that's where I spent my summers, was in the state park. And this, this gentleman that, that inspired you to travel around the world, tell us about him. Yeah, so he's kind of like my second father figure. His name's Chris, Chris Lyman. When did he come into your life? At the Chinese restaurant. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> Where you meet all great adventures. Where you meet all great adventures. I was, uh, I was washing dishes in the back of this Chinese restaurant. And, you know, this is a Chinese restaurant in rural Minnesota. And he traveled around the world, and he's the one that started to expose me to these books. He'd been to China before. And he'd been to these places that I didn't even know existed. You can't know about a spot in the world if you don't even know that it's there. Right. And it's like, do you know about this spot? Do you know about this spot? Do you know about this spot? And what was his position? What was he doing? So he was the main chef, um, but wow. he also had a farm. And he's the one that had dairy goats. He was a dairy goat farmer. He had these um, bees. I learned how to get honey from bees. We made our own maple syrup. We slaughter a lot of chickens. We take eggs from chickens. We had sheep. You know, he basically taught me. I grew up watching a lot of TV. When I, I remember I was a, a little boy. I was, I was a pretty pudgy little boy. Really? Yeah. Because uh, they used to say... What are you, 6'5"? Six 6'5"? Five? Six five. You're, 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 you're quite tall. Yeah. Yeah. They used I to can't say, imagine you being I was, a, I was a bit... I played offensive line in high school. I could believe that. They used to say, J.J. Kelly has a big belly. Oh, no. Because I would play a lot of video games. Yeah. I'd watch a lot of TV. But then I started and read a lot of books and read a lot of books. Yeah. But I didn't really start reading books until I met Chris. Yes. I play a lot of video games, but he exposed me to this larger world, spending time on the farm. And that's really when, you know, my outlook on life just changed. You've done some amazing physical things. Like I've ridden what, 1300 miles on a, with a bike and you've kayaked huge distances, but you weren't really an athlete as a kid. No, no, I, I, I was, a. 
Played video games. More of a video game yeah, guy. Yeah, I was more of a video game guy. And who's Josh? So my best friend in life is somebody who I met hiking the Appalachian Trail. Okay. So I remember I made all this food to hike the Appalachian Trail. And I started with a friend of mine who I'd met up in Alaska the summer before. She suffered from these incredible asthma attacks. We hiked through the state of Maine together. And then she said, she, you know, I remember her in tears saying, I'm loving this trip. I'm really enjoying hiking you know, this trail with you, but I can't do this anymore. I'm done. So I walked through the state of New Hampshire by myself. Probably the most empowering time in my life. To How, be on what my what own. kind of period was that? Three weeks, uh, 180 miles over the, the White Mountains, which is one of the more rugged parts of the Appalachian Trail. Yep. And I felt so strong. You know, I'd been hiking for four weeks before that, and I had had this pack on, and I was in the best shape of my life at that point. The best way, people always, how do you train to do a three-month-long, four-month-long trip? Well, you, you, you start doing it. You know, you don't go get in over your head right away. You start with relatively easy mileage. So I was doing eight miles a day, carrying the pack, and going through and climbing up these mountains. And then I do nine miles a day after four or five days, then I'd do 10 miles a day. And I'd slowly, incrementally work my way up. So you, you have this period of time for like three weeks by yourself. Yep. And was that a really life-changing moment for absolutely. you? Absolutely, absolutely. What happened in that period of time? What I, I felt confident in who I was. I felt like I have everything that I need to be sustainable, to survive. I am making my way along this trail. I'm thriving at this point because I'm in great shape. And I'm happy. I found what makes me happy. And then you met Josh after this? So then I remember I went into a t small town after I crossed into Vermont. And I looked at these long maps of the Appalachian Trail. They had these four foot long kind of rollout maps. Yeah. And I was feeling like hot shit at this point. Because I'd hiked through Maine. I'd hiked through New Hampshire. And I'm like, God, I am doing good. You know, I'm, I'm some seven weeks into this thing and I'm doing good. And then I look at the whole Appalachian Trail. And I'd probably gone four inches of four feet at that point. Oh my God. And, and then I, at that point, thought I could go crazy if I hike this whole thing by myself. I started to analyze what it meant. When you hike for 10 hours a day, you have a lot of time in your head. And I was thinking, what does it mean to like kind of go crazy? And I'm thinking, if I have a the weird idea. The fact that you were thinking that means. That's, I'm already. You you're know, already going there. I'm already in dangerous territory. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, if I had a weird idea right now, I could tell you this idea, Phil. And you could be like, it's kind of weird, JJ. But if there's no checks and balances, if yeah. there's nobody to say like, JJ, that's kind of a weird idea, I could go off on a path. Well, you had already gone off on a path with the oats, <laughs> the horse oats. That was already. Yeah, yeah. I'm already pretty extreme. Yeah. Know? And that's dangerous at mm -hmm. that point. <laughs> Careful what you wish for. So the next day, you know, I'd met other people hiking the Appalachian Trail. Some were faster hikers than me. Not many. A couple. A lot, you know, were slower. A lot I didn't get along with. Um, a lot didn't get along with me. It just didn't feel right. And then I met this young man the next day, and he was a lot like me. He was one year older. He was hiking by himself. His original partner, uh, he got injured because he started, Josh started hiking too fast, and his original partner went on. So he was kind of slowing down, and we were at the same fitness at that point. So we just started walking together. Day one, day two, we were hitting it off. You know, five months later, we finished the Appalachian Trail together. And he and I both had this idea of how do we make this sustainable. So then it led to a The idea of adventures. Of adventures. Yeah. Of how do we keep doing this? 
and somewhat pay the bills. We don't need to be rich, yeah. but how do we stay happy? And how do we be, you know, pay the bills? So that led to a series of adventures, crazy things like building our own kayaks out of wood and kayaking from Alaska to Seattle, biking across the entire state of Alaska. You trusted your own kayak from? From Alaska. From Alaska to, to Seattle. Seattle. How far is that? Took us 97 days. There's, uh, there's killer whales and all kinds of things out there, JJ. Lots of brown bears, humpbacks, big, big seas. And then we just... And now, was this a f something you filmed at yeah, that point? So yeah. this was your first filming job? So we'd done a trip before that where we yeah. biked across the state of Alaska up to Prudhoe Bay. And that was the 1,300-mile yeah. trip? Yeah. That sounds like it was a pretty brutal trip, too. That was a crazy trip. Yeah. You've done a pretty intense biking trip. You I know. have, but... but yours, I, actually, yours is way more intense than this well, biking trip. It's all relative, but just the idea of riding that far for, for people who haven't done that. Like you said, it's, it's, it's amazing what the body will adapt to if you just go into it and you just make up your mind you're going to do something yeah. and then you just take it you know, one pedal stroke at a time or in your case walking the Appalachian Trail just like one mile at a time just keep knocking them off, you're knocking off those miles. So obviously this thing has not stopped in you, this drive to do adventures, but I think what's so cool is that you kind of like to do it at a real grassroots level. You, you know, you build your own kayak and go get your own horse oats. Um, you're not just going to the adventure store and putting on the, uh, you know, the, oh, I need those adventure pants. You know the people I'm talking about, right? Yeah. I, you you kind of like to do it at an organic level. What, what, it, do you think that's because of your background? And like you said, you had food stamps when you were a kid. Do you think it's yeah, the practicality yeah. of that? Or? Yeah. I mean, to fund, basically, I'd saved $2,000 to do my first big trip to hike the Appalachian Trail. Yeah. And I had all this food available to me in the form of honey and the oats that were cheap and yeah. the animals that we had on our farm, you know, that was all very accessible and that wasn't going to cost me much money. So I yeah. decided I had time, I had resources, I didn't have money, so I could just make it, make it myself. And so this kayak adventure was, was the first time that, that you and Josh then decided you were going to film it. So, so the before that on our biking trip, we I'm sorry, but the, yeah. the biking trip was the first time. So yeah. the Alaska biking trip was the first time you decided to film and what you would just film each other. Were, yeah, we knew nothing. You know, I, I knew nothing about making television or how to have cameras. Like when you say nothing, you, you didn't know how sequences were put together or how to expose no, a camera or nothing, nothing, nothing. And you're how old at this point? 22. Okay. 22. Right. So he said, all right, kid. Yeah, all right. And I said, okay. And I knew nothing. You know, I was like, should we be shooting film? And he's like, no, don't shoot film. No, no, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Full disclosure. Yeah. JJ and I had to go and shoot a story for National Geographic Explorer. It's now dark outside. Everybody would like to go and have something to eat. But yeah. we need to wrap up our conversation. Yeah. So JJ... Technology, it's a wonderful thing. Um, you came along into the television world at a time, at a pivotal time when filmmaking, telling stories, using technology was way more accessible for everybody yeah. than it had been for so long. Yeah. yeah. Video production is so much more accessible today than it was 20 years ago. And I was coming into video production, television production, at a time when you could get your own Handycam for under $2,000. Mm. So what we did is we built these kayaks out of wood, and we were going to kayak for however long it took. We knew it would be about three months from Alaska to Seattle. And we were able, this is pre-GoPro days, we had underwater housings, 
So we had cameras kind of stuffed in underwater housings and it was just kind of guerrilla filmmaking. Just like we each had a camera, we were going from point A to point B, we'd interview each other, and then anybody that we met on the adventure, we'd try to tell their story as well. Had you read any books about how to make a, a, a no, story or no. tell it? I mean, my buddy, this filmmaker, Ben, gave us yeah. some advice. He's like- What did he say? I remember he said, try to put yourself in an interesting situation. Okay. You know, try to put yourself in a spot, a, a physical space that looks interesting. Always try to incorporate movement. If you're talking to the camera, why not be walking and talking? Why not be on your bike? Tell crazy stories. And then, you know, we just had all this time to talk to camera because we'd interview other people, but at the end of the day, to pull this narrative along, it was just us. You must have had a natural instinct because I've seen the kayaking piece or elements of the kayaking piece and it looked like you've been telling stories forever. And maybe that was just because of the, the passion you had for the subject material. I mean, I, it looks to me like if you look at the, the type of work that you've been doing over the years, it's, it, there are stories that really speak to you, things mm -hmm. that, that matter to you. Mm -hmm. I think that we're just so lucky to have this planet, to have these resources, and to have the diversity that we have around the world, whether it's from species to people. So I love to be immersed in that, and just that makes me happier than a pig in shit, really. <laughs> and you know what? I, I'm totally with you on that. As I'm getting older, it's becoming more important for me to be involved in stories that matter mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, and wanting to share things that matter, yeah. that can make a difference yeah. in somebody's life, get yeah. people to think. Right. And that's why I love telling the stories that we tell. I mean, in the last five weeks, we've told three, four, four, right? four incredible stories together. Yeah. And, you know, we only have so much time on this planet. And if you find that one thing, you know, I'd say that's what the journey of my career up to this point has been, is to find that thing that makes you happy. Because if you're passionate about something, if you really truly are happy and enjoying what you do, mm. you're going to work so much harder. You're going to be happier when you're there day in and day out because it's a slog. I think it's easy to have a job that you check in and check out and working for the weekends. Mm. But if you find something that matters, because we have such a small window of time on this planet, and why not do something that you think is going to make this place better than when you started living on it? And why not do something through this small window of time that we call life that makes you happy? We think about all the different skills you have, JJ, right? Yeah, you work in a Chinese one. restaurant. You know all about oats. You know yeah. all about uh, killing uh, animals to make dried meat. And you have a lot of initiative. Yeah. Yeah. It was, was that part of your upbringing from being at home, your mom and dad? You, know, you, you mentioned that you guys had it hard. I think that if you have to work for something, and you have to problem solve on your own, you're just gonna be set up a lot better for life. You know, yeah. even if you have kids and you have resources and you can give them the resources, I think to just to pull back and, and make them get that job and make them, you know, fight to get into college and, and don't give them everything because we all need to worry about something in life. And if you really don't have anything to worry about, you're gonna worry about trivial things. I wanted to hear about what happened when you went to Antarctica. It's a place that's on my list. I, ha I haven't been there. I've had mm -hmm. a couple of trips canceled, but you spent five months down there on the ice? Five months on the ice. I went in with 
The Kiwi program yeah. uh, went down. What do you think of the Kiwis? Oh, I love them. You, you like the Kiwis? You know, it's hard to make TV with, with Kiwis, though, because they're... So understated? Well, yeah, their they're temperament. They can deal with anything. You know, yeah. you work used to making American television. And, and the situation sometimes when you make TV is not that dire, but you have to make it, you have to create stakes, right? Yeah. But down there, the situation was dire. You know, we were at, I remember we were living at a deep field camp. 200 miles away from anybody across a crevasse field. It was negative 40 air temperature with wind chill. It was negative 75. We're in these tents. Our tents are flying apart. I can't walk from one tent to the next unless I'm holding my hand on this guideline that brings me from one tent to the toilet tent. And, you're, and I, I went out there with a the camera and I started filming the field team. And I was like, holy shit, this is crazy. <laughs> I've never, like, my fingers hurt. Everything burns. It's negative 70 with wind chill right now. And they'd just be like, yeah, not that bad. In New Zealand, you know, everything is, it, it's a thing to undersell yeah, everything. Exactly. You know, like it reminds me of the Monty Python uh, sketch, you know, where the guy keeps getting a limb cut off. Oh, it's just a flesh wound, nothing to worry about. That's what New Zealand That's is exactly like. exactly what it is. Right? It's like you're bleeding, you're spilling blood right yeah. now. On the oh, ice. Yeah, no problem. I'll just uh, stop the bleeding. It's no, it no seems worries. pretty bad to me. Five months, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so I spent a month in a deep field camp living on the ice. I was at Scott Base mm -hmm. for about a month. Um, I was on the U.S. Polar Star, which mm -hmm. is an icebreaker that carves the channel so Antarctica can be resupplied. And then I spent a month on a whale research boat. So and all of this was for what? For National Geographic? For National Geographic. I've had the chance to go to somewhere around like 50, 60 countries for National Geographic. Yeah. And you go there, and I've, I've worked a little bit for other companies, and you show up, and they're like, oh, who are, you, who are you here with? And you're like, oh, I'm with blah, blah. And they're like, oh, that's cool. But if you say, it's, it's got this sterling reputation. If you say yeah. that you're with National Geographic, like, what do you need to see? What do you need to film? You want to go on this rooftop? You want to go behind this secret door right here? You know, you want to film this? I, I wanted to read you a quote and just get you to, to talk about it. You said, I've witnessed people living in America with, with straight pipes that literally run from their toilet into their backyards um, where kids play. Uh, and it is shocking, right? Like sometimes when you dig into a story and, and, and it just opens up your eyes to something that you don't think about. You don't think about poverty in, in America, but you, you don't seem scared to go after any topic. Right for for telling stories, why is it important for you to to uncover things that people don't know about? What is where does that come from? I think you know it's as simple as if you find something interesting, then other people are going to find it interesting. If you feel uncomfortable in a spot and you feel physically threatened, then it's probably a good story. If you don't have cell phone reception, mm -hmm. it's probably a good story. You know, the further that you get off the grid and the more unusual situations you find yourself in, that's unique access. And generally, that's a good story. So, JJ, what about the future? What, is there a story that you really want to tell that you're going after? I mean, if you want to reveal it, is there anything? Well, you got I'm, something in mind? I mean, I'm having fun right now. I've been producing since I started with National Geographic, and I'm really enjoying this kind of new frontier. You know, I was able to shoot, and I like to tell stories through holding a camera through producing, and now I've become a correspondent on Explorer. I'm yep. getting to tell stories in front of the camera. Yeah. And you know, as somebody who's traveled around the world and told all these stories in a specific position as a producer, to try something a little new, you know, to get those goosebumps again of, of okay, I'm gonna tell the story from this side of the camera. So, uh, 
speaking of stories, yeah. let's go back. <laughs> let's go back to that, that, those fake tusks. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to the point where you are arrested. You're under arrest. Yes, you are under arrest. J.J. Kelly, I'm sorry to tell you, you are under arrest. What happens? That wasn't a great day. Um, so basically, he says, you know, I've never made a mistake before. These are ivory tusks. How dare you destroy our natural resources? Come with me. So he brought us to the holding cell. It was a jail outside of Dar es Salaam International Airport and spent a night in jail. Um, luckily, they, I mean, they'd stripped all of our cameras away from us. We still had our iPhones and there were police everywhere, but we were kind of sneaking shots from our iPhones because as a story point, <coughs> these things were doing great. Like if we were gonna bring these into the center of Africa, into the worst of the worst where people's lives would be on the line, they better be damn good. And the fact that we got arrested from somebody who's been doing this job for 12 years and has never made a mistake, they must be all right. So we spent that night in jail. It wasn't comfortable, but it was fine. The police chief even took me out to go get some chicken. I like, he broke me out to get some, where we actually, I actually you mean the, chose the, the chicken. The, the, the chief of police broke you out of he jail broke, to go get bad. chicken? He felt bad. For Fried me. chicken? What kind of chicken? Well, it, he said, choose your chicken. Oh, choose your chicken. And they were living chickens. They were living chickens. Living chickens. Oh, you mean choose your, not yeah. like what flavor of chicken do you want, but no. choose your chicken. Yeah, it was just a bunch of hens that were running around. Did you pick one? Yeah, I picked one. Yeah. And I chopped it up, cooked it up. He gave me some beers. Um, he, was, he had some chicken with me. He was Muslim. He didn't drink any beer. But um, the next day I woke up and the head of Flora and Fauna came. He said, you know, after a lot of you know, discussion and, and pleading with him that you know, we weren't these awful ivory smugglers that he thought, he let us go. So we booked another flight and we flew into the Congo. And what happened next was really incredible. These tusks, you know, we haven't revealed how we got them into the system because we don't want to expose those people, but we got them into the system. And we're able to look back at monitoring systems to see how these things are moving. And we had a problem right away because we just had a dot. And a dot is a problem if you're trying to track something because it means it's not moving. You need a line. So day one, dot. Day two, dot. Week one, dot. Week two, dot. And then we're, you know, I'd spent a half year of my life working on this project. And I was like, we got a real problem here if these things don't start moving. <sighs> then they move nine miles. Next day, nine miles. Next day, a very unusual span of distance, right? So we're like, they're walking these things. They're walking them through thick, dense Congolese jungle. They're walking these tusks. Nine miles, nine miles, nine miles. Nine miles a day. They walked in the equivalent of going from Washington, D.C. to Detroit, Michigan. They walked them. And they brought them, you know, because we didn't know where they were going to go. They could have gone out through a traditional How many of the, of, the, uh, of the tusks? Three tusks. Three of them. Three of the tusks. Um, they walked them up into, into Sudan. Sudan is a known terrorist state for the United States. It's a, it's a sworn enemy. Um, we had evidence that they were going into Joseph Kony's camp. We were also interviewing individuals who had corroborated that Joseph Kony, this awful, disgusting warlord who has sex slaves, who has child soldiers, who slaughters entire villages, is taking ivory tusks and he's selling them and trading them for weapons that he's using to cause bloodshed across Central Africa. And we had corroborating evidence from people who had escaped, from child soldiers, from soldiers who defected. And they're all saying, yes, 
he's dealing in ivory. So they stop in where we think Joseph Kony's camp is, in this disputed region of Sudan called Kafia Kingi. And sure enough, they, they stayed there. They eventually petered out. They made their way into Sudan a little bit. But we had the coordinates of where this ivory was moving. We had an amazing story. The story ran on the cover of National Geographic magazine. We took this information to Congress. Um, Congress imposed legislation. Um, you know, not just our story, but others. There was a, a wave of uh, activity and journalism associated with the ivory trade. The US government outlawed ivory. The story ran not only in the United States, but it ran in China because the Chinese weren't the bad guy. Joseph Kony was the bad guy. Two years after that, all the government-run carving factories and sale shops in China have been shut down. That is so awesome. Yeah. What an awesome story. So if people want to watch this, where, where can they see it? The film's called Warlords of Ivory. And uh, you can find it online. It's, it's pretty available out there. I love that story. Yeah. Thank you. Good for you, man. Thank you. Good for you. Um, JJ, I, I, I hope we get to chat again because I, I, I'd like this to hear more. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to hear this. more of your stories. Uh, and, and I'm looking forward to your stories on National Geographic Explorer. A couple of stories that we're going to see from you this season. So I had the chance to go free diving in Hawaii. Hawaiian islands are vulnerable if there's going to be some kind of natural disaster like what we saw in Peru. You know, these islands, because of globalization, are so isolated that if the supply chain is cut off, they only have a 10-day supply of food. So I hung out with some Hawaiians who knew that that didn't always used to be the case, and we went free diving. Yeah. Um, went down to Peru, had a chance to discover a new theory for these enigmatic lines called the Nazca lines that can be seen from space, and uh, a couple other stories as well. But it was a lot of fun. Look out for those. Well, as I always do, JJ, I, I end with a couple of questions. Uh, firstly, hmm. If you were going to take a road trip with anybody in history, yeah. and maybe that road trip is across America or it could be anywhere, mm -hmm. and you could have three companions in the car with you, who would you take with you? I'd take my travel partner, Josh, because I, like I told you, I lived a year in a tent, and I lived a year in a tent with that guy. I think you're compatible. We're compatible at this yeah. point. You can be in tough situations, and we could always laugh about it. That's so, good. Um, I'd take my mom, because she was really incredible, and, and she pulled through to just give me this life that I have and all you this opportunity. You think she would get on within the group? She'd I think she, she'd get along all right. She knows Josh. Okay. And then I'd take my wife, Kate, because I'm gone so much on the road that I don't get to see her nearly enough. Yeah, uh, I, I can understand that. <laughs> That's a tough one. And JJ, your last day on Earth, if you knew that tomorrow was your last day on Earth, what would you do with that day? I'd find, I love, just love being outside, and I feel so fortunate for the life that I've been able to live. I'd, find the nearest mountain peak that I could go to where I could get above tree line and I'd, I'd hike up there. I'd take all the loved ones that would come with me. You know, I'd grab some beers and you know, I'd just go up there and thank this planet for what it's given me. What kind of beer? I am an IPA guy. Yeah, IPA guy. Uh, but I'm, okay. I'm easy. I'll take whatever. Whatever. As long as it's beer. As long as it's beer. JJ, you're awesome, man. Yeah, Phil, we'll, thank we'll you so much. We'll talk again. Yeah, yeah. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great. You can watch this podcast online at philcogan.com. And let me know what's on your bucket list. You never know. You might be my next guest. Don't forget, ticket before you kick it.